This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, heard Sunday mornings at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, heard Sunday mornings at 9 on Zoomer Radio. The new AM740. The world doesn't need another sports show. It needs an awesome sports show. You're listening to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio. Good morning, Naz. Good morning, Wally. Neil, the boys are back. Let's talk sports. Good morning and welcome to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour. We are live from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto. Uh, I'm your host, Walter Rigabon. As usual with me, my co-host, Naz Marchese. Good morning, Naz. How are you? Good, Wally. How are you today? Well, it's certainly a little bit warmer uh, this Sunday than it was last Sunday. Um, in fact, it was warm enough yesterday. I managed to even get out my golf clubs and go go hit a few up at the launch up in, up in Woodbridge outdoors. So kind of figured you'd do that. Well, I, I, I thought I saw a couple of Toronto Maple Leafs up there getting ready for the, uh, uh, they were, for they the were, golf season. They but were ready a month and a half ago. Anyways, that's tongue-in-cheek and no, <laughs> don't, no disrespect intended. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs season has gone... The way uh, the way it was predicted it would go, and as Mike uh, Babcock said... Um, we were going to see a lot of pain this year. Boy, has that been painful <laughs> the last couple of weeks? And uh, it's been painful. Uh, apparently, they've lost 15 of their last 19. Um, and uh, it's there's been a lot of pain. I hope they've been taking their Advil because uh, if you're a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, you're certainly uh, popping quite a few of those. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting... Uh, you know uh, the Leafs. You know you look at their points and it's and it's horrendous. But um, you know the I guess the 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 management there did a good job uh, from a PR point of view preparing the fans in terms of in terms of what was going to happen this year. So there there I don't sense any outrage out there in Leaf in Leaf Nation. Uh, you know, a couple of positive things. Uh, if you want to look at these things in a positive manner, they've cleared the decks. In terms of salary cap space, yeah, except one Joffrey Lupo, but uh, everything else has been cleared. Yeah, by them. Yeah. Anyways, I, I want to do uh, before we we'll come back and talk chat about the Leafs a little bit and something that's going to start tomorrow. Uh, uh, but uh, I want to intro uh, intro our show because I think this is an important show. We've got some important guests today, and uh, Naz, I'll turn it over to you. Why don't you intro the guest we're going to have right after our first break? It's certainly going to be an interesting discussion. Yeah, the guest we're going to have is Mike Marson, former Washington Capitol and L.A. King. He was the second black player to play in the NHL after Willie O'Ree. He's got some fascinating uh, information for us from the days when he, where he grew up in the NHL. Very tough times for him, and uh, we'll talk about that after the that break, right? Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to talking to Mike Marson. Uh, uh, an important story, and uh, Toronto boy grew up in Scarborough in the Wexford uh, Wexford area, and uh, uh, played for the Washington Capitals in the mid 1970s. And as you say, Naz, he was the uh, uh, second black player in the NA, in the uh, NHL, and uh, you know he had some hurdles to overcome. And uh, certainly want to chat with him and. Uh, and uh, coincidentally, or uh, it is Black History Month in Canada, and uh, 
It's an appropriate time to talk to Mike Marson. Really looking forward to that. And uh, after the second break, it's the NHL story that just doesn't seem to want to go away. It keeps coming back, doesn't it? keeps it? coming back. We talked about it with Kerry Fraser on the show a few weeks back. Uh, Dennis Weidman. Um, and Dennis Weidman, of course, is the uh, Calgary Flame who got into an altercation with uh, with a linesman in a game uh, in the last week in January and uh, got suspended by for 20 games. And Gary Bettman upheld that suspension this week um, in, in, a, in, a, in a controversial, uh, I wouldn't call it a judgment or an order. It was, a, it was a ruling that he released. You can find it on the Internet. I've read it a few times. And we're going to be talking to Stephen Greigel. Uh, Stephen has been on the show before. He is the lead attorney for the NHL. Uh, uh, he's, a, he's an attorney for the, uh, for the NHL players, the retired players who are suing the NHL in the concussion litigation. Uh, Stephen's a very bright man, graduated of uh, Harvard Law School, got all kinds of experience before various uh, courts, including Supreme Court in the United States. Uh, we've chatted with him a few times before, and we're going to chat with him about... Uh, about Gary Bettman's uh, judgment. Uh, certainly want to get his legal analysis. Uh, and uh, we're going to catch up with him about, on the NHL concussion litigation because that's a story that uh, that won't go away. Uh, and a new twist with the injury to the linesman, too, who has been concussed. And now what is the protocol for linesmen or referees that, when it comes to concussions? You raise a very interesting issue, Naz, because we know what the protocol is. I mean, there's a very specific protocol for players, they've got something called the quiet room. Uh, the trainers are supposed to ask them some questions. If there's any doubt, they're supposed to send them back uh, to a room and they're supposed to be evaluated. And in Dennis Weidman's case, uh, he, he preferred uh, uh, a couple of doctors uh, as evidence at his, at his hearing uh, who are, uh, I guess the case is that part of his defense is that he was concussed, but the protocol was uh, was not instituted in case. And, and then we go to the official. As it turned out, the official uh, took a pretty serious blow from Weidman, to be quite frank. He um, was prone, laying prone on the ice, got up, shook himself off. He's a tough character. He's, you know, he's a pretty physically uh, imposing figure, Don yeah. Henderson. He's, yeah. he's no wallflower, let's put it that way. I mean, he can handle himself. But... Uh, he was, he was on the ice for a bit, and then he got up and he refereed the rest of the game. Yeah, he finished the game. Which he is... finished the game. And then after the game, he headed to the hospital. They brought him to the hospital, and he was diagnosed with a concussion. concussion. And he hasn't been able to referee since. Uh, and there's, there's I've seen some commentary that, um, you know, this may have, this is, he was planning on retiring at the end of this year. There's there's It's unlikely he will... Uh, ref another game between now and the end of the year. So that may, in fact, have been his last game in the NHL. Well, that will turn out. But uh, interesting question. What is the concussion protocol for referees? And, you know, we, we assume that referees don't get concussed. But, Nas, a couple of weeks ago when we had Kerry Fraser on the show, maybe you want to maybe you might want to go back to a question yeah, you I, asked I, I Kerry asked Fraser. Him, has he ever been uh, hit while he was refereeing, ever, ever had an incident, and he said yes a couple of times, and he was concussed. Now, we didn't follow up with the next question about uh, uh, what was the protocol, because they didn't have any back then. He just finished the game and did whatever, right? They never, they, that was a different era. But now you get a situation where Henderson gets shoved from behind, 
And does Gary Bettman's 20-game decision have something to do with the fact that the referee can't come back? Who knows? Well, I think it may, that, it may be um, the major part of this. Oh, I, I have no doubts that if, um, I mean, the NHL is, you know, we'll talk to Stephen uh, Greigel about this, and, uh, and not, I don't want to take away from his thunder. Yeah. Uh, and he's, in, 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 before we get to him, I know that he's got, he's got a, he's got an, uh, I wouldn't use the word admiration, but he's got, he's got a certain level of respect for Gary Bettman. Um, but I don't think the NHL politically could have, I think that's what it came down to. I mean, I disagree uh, with the length of the suspension, but I, I certainly understand the NHL could not have been caught in a situation where they're not defending the referees, and rightly so. They have no choice. You know, I mean, the refs. You know, they. You know, there, there's one. You know, there's a rule. You don't touch the refs. You do not lay a hand on a referee, and and if the, and if you do, you're going to pay the consequences. What do you think of Brian Burke's reaction to that? I, I found that's it very. Brian, su- that's typical. I Brian. found it very surprising that he would. Oh, speak why would like, you find it surprising? Come well, on, Naz. You know, Brian uh, Burke gotta, is Brian. He's he's the master of uh, of bluster. Uh, he he doesn't call a spade. He, you know he sees the. You know he's he's willing to go on the record without a filter. I mean he was he was protecting his player. Right, he was protecting his player, just like the referee, just like the NHL is protecting the referees. He's he's protecting his player. Um, I mean, his grievance. I mean, his grievance is why did it take so long for Bettman basically to rubber stamp Colin Campbell's ruling? Uh, I mean, it took over a week. Came, came, you know, came down. And in, in, in the meantime, he's got a player. He's in the thick of trying to get a team into the playoffs. Weidman's one of their better defensemen, and he's sitting on the sidelines. And you know, I'm if I'm if I'm Brian Burke, you know, I, I guess I'm going to be a little bit frustrated. But that's Brian Burke. You know, he's not gonna, he's not going to hold anything back. He's a pretty brash guy, but I I, I was surprised he didn't uh, follow the NHL on this one, but he, he didn't and. Uh... Let's see what happens. Well, I'm, with not, this. I'm not. I'm not surprised he didn't follow the NHL. I mean, I, I mean, the only. I think the issue here was there was going to be a suspension. There had to. There be. had to be. Yeah. There had to be, and we talked to Kerry uh, Fraser about this a few weeks back, and we broke it down. There's three categories of suspensions. So really, you know, was it going to come in at, at the at the mandatory ten game suspension? with Bettman having the discretion to up it, or was it going to come in at the 20 games, minimum 20? And that was really the issue. And the NHL, for what I consider to be political reasons, just brought it in at 20, saying, you know what, we're, we're, we, you know, we're not going to do anything other than defend our referees. And I don't think they spent, I, you know, in in Bet, Bettman's judgment, and you know we can talk about this at length, and we will. Um, it's just he's he's defending his referees, and Brian Burke is defending his player, and defending his team, and defending his fans, uh, and he, and they're playing their own particular role. And uh, I I didn't I didn't I mean some people thought Burke was a little bit over the top. I just thought Brian Burke was just being Brian Burke. And well, Brian Burke is always over the top, though. So that's the that's the difference. Well, you know, in in a politically uh, in a politically correct world, sometimes you know it's 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 refreshing sometimes to have people uh, who are willing to actually say what's on their minds. So I I have no problems with Brian Burke. You know, I'd prefer somebody I'd prefer a Brian Burke saying what's on his mind than a Brian Burke just you know keeping it to himself. 
are being politically correct. He's, you know what, and that's why I guess, you know, players love him, maybe. You know, yeah. uh, he stands up for his players. He's always had that well, reputation. That, that he does, for sure. Anyways, we've, uh, we've got to go to break, and we'll be right back after the break with former, uh, former Washington Capitol, local Toronto boy, and with uh, we're going to be talking about the Mike Marson story. Uh, hang in there. We'll be right back. It was a rainy day when Pizzaville brought back the large five-topping pizza special for just $13.99 for a limited time. I'm whispering because the last time Pizzaville brought back this special, there was pandemonium in the streets, pushing, shoving, biting. So order now and order often, and hopefully you won't have any bite marks when this is over. Call Pizzaville for the large five-topping pizza special at pound 3636 from your cell phone. Shh. There's an old saying, entrepreneurship doesn't build character, it reveals character. Entrepreneurs learn to trust a person by trusting people. The law firm Rigabon Carly understands this. They know all about entrepreneurs because they work for them. Every day, they've earned their trust. They know that when it comes to meeting the legal and business needs of entrepreneurs, good enough is not enough. Rigabon Carly, the intelligent choice. Steel's Paint in Woodbridge, an enormous 20,000-square-foot superstore that carries nothing but the best. Superior staff, superior advice, superior selection, superior everything. When you have a really tough job to do, they can knock it down to size. They'll show you how to get it done right, and because they only sell the best of everything, you'll get it done to last. That means superior satisfaction. Steel's Paint, 4190 Steel's Avenue West in Woodbridge. The best. At Titanium Logistics, we believe that choosing the right shipping company comes down to two issues, price and cost. Most prices are competitive, will likely save you money too, but the cost of choosing the wrong company to service your cross-border freight to and from the U.S. and Mexico can be extraordinary. If it's not where it should be, when it should be, that bargain price, worthless. Titanium Logistics, on time, on budget. Call 905-266-3014. Ask for Blair Downey. This is Daryl Sittler for Alta Infinity and Vaughn. I've worked with some pretty great teams over the years, and the staff at Alta ranks among the very best. Expert sales, superior service, and the largest selection of Infinity cars and SUVs in Canada, and the most competitive pricing anywhere. It's no wonder that Alta has been an all-star performer for well over a decade. Visit AltaInfinityWoodbridge.com, or better yet, drop by the number 7 Auto Mall at the corner of Martin Grove and Highway 7. Experience the difference that makes Alta Infinity the captain's choice. With a little training, anyone can learn the security business while on duty at your home or company. It's unfortunate, but a lot of security companies are just not experienced enough to handle the complex dynamics of tactical security. And that little bit of training and experience can end up costing you a lot more than you bargained for. Peace of mind, trust, and honor is the foundation on which the regal security reputation is built. They're driven, they're respected, and they're unrivaled. They're everyday superheroes. Visit them online at regalsecurity.ca and find out how much they know, not how much they can learn. You name it, they'll argue about it. No sport left unturned. The boys are back, the Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour. We are live from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto. We are pleased 
to welcome to the show uh, Mike Marson. Mike Marson, of course, uh, had a career with the NHL in with the Washington Capitals and, uh, and was the uh, second black player to play in the NHL and grew up in the Toronto area in Scarborough. Mike, uh, welcome to the Nazanwali Sports Hour. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Good morning, Nazanwali. Good morning, Mike. And I've, I've been told uh, if you were in studio with me here today, I'm supposed to bow to you and I'm supposed to say os. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> I got I got that one from uh, from Gustel Cole, who uh, who's, who's a friend of mine and apparently a friend of yours. Yes, so he he's a fine man, and his son Michael, of course, is uh, uh, embarking on a, a career in the National Hockey League very shortly. So, uh, of course, welcome and Ose once again. Thank you, Ose to you too, Wally. Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, listen, uh, th- uh, want to go back to um, uh, back to your career and back to your. Growing up, uh, of course, you grew up in Scarborough in the yes. Wex- in the Wexford area, from what I understand. And That's right. uh, Warden and Lawrence. Warden and Lawrence, and uh, you know, you are uh, you are a player of uh, of Black heritage. Yes. Uh, tell us what it was like in the in the challenges that you had to overcome uh, in your early years in the minor hockey systems in the Toronto area. Well, there really wasn't a lot of difficulty here in Toronto per se. In those days, we played out of the old uh, Tamashaner. Uh, they had a, a figure skating rink, they had a curling rink, and they had, of course, a hockey ice pad, I guess they'd call it today. But, um, yeah, most of the things that, uh, you know, that took place probably took place uh, in the years where I became uh, a commodity, so to speak, uh, going down to Chatham, playing down in the, with the Chatham Maroons, and then, of course, uh, uh, going to uh, the Sudbury Wolves as their number one draft pick. Uh, in 1972, I guess it would be. Which which uh, minor hockey? Sorry, uh, Mike. Which minor hockey association did you actually play for? In uh, I played as you for grew Wexford, up? the old Wexford uh, franchise that they had here, and we had some great teams back in those days. It was it was what everybody did, you know. And uh, I remember uh, Sunday mornings in particular. We used to have an early early ice practice, and uh, the Maple Leafs would come out afterwards. They had. They had booked, I guess it would be for around 9.30 or 10 o'clock. And I remember uh, some of the old greats like Sid Smith and Carl Brewer and, you know, the guys from the, the 60s uh, coming out. And, you know, they just play a little bit of shinny. Uh, Punch Imlach was the coach then, and uh, he wouldn't often show up. But these guys would be out there working out their, their grooves, and guys coming back off injuries would be, you know, trying to get themselves back in shape. Mike, uh, you were drafted uh, when you were 18 years old. I think that was the year that they changed over from a 20-year-old being drafted. That's right. That was the f- we had the very first underage draft. Uh, at the time, the WHA, which was the rival hockey league that had come in, they were going to scoop up um, about 20 of us and, and sign us so that the National Hockey League w- you know, wouldn't be able to, to touch us. And they, of course, would boost their, um, you know, their uh, stock of hockey players. Um, and we were considered to be, back in those days, uh, you know, 20 of the best juniors coming up. And, of course, uh, turning pro so early, uh, I think it, would, it worked as a detriment because uh, of all the guys that, that did turn pro in the first couple of rounds, uh, most of us didn't play longer than three or four years. I think Mark Howe was the one that played the longest. I think he played, what, 18 years with uh, Detroit? Yeah, one heck of a player. Great sure. player. One of the best ever. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, yeah, it was it was it was pretty interesting in those days. I mean, if you if you go back in time and you realize that back in 1974, uh, we had um, 
uh, all kinds of, of issues going on, race issues going on in the U.S. Uh, they had the burning of the cities. Uh, they had the riots. Uh, they had, of course, in the 60s, the assassination of, of Dr. King uh, and, of course, uh, both of the Kennedy brothers. Uh, it was pretty intense going into some of the different situations because the people would look at me, per se, and wonder why I was there. Why are you coming in Madison Square Garden? Uh, what do you mean you're playing hockey? Uh, the, the difficulties moving into or checking into hotels where, you know, traditionally they didn't allow blacks to stay in those hotels. Um, you know, now all of a sudden here I'm part of a team, and, and uh, I remember a situation where, uh, one of my coaches made a comment to the, the staff because they had asked, is this kid with you guys? And he had said, yes, he is. And he said, if there's a problem, we won't be staying here if he can't stay here, and we'll be calling New York, and none of the teams will be staying here. Mike, I want, uh, want to ask you, um, obviously there was, uh, you know, the, the 60s and 70s were, were certainly turbulent times. Yes. Um, and and, and uh, I, I've seen some other uh, comments that you've made um, that uh, you consider yourself a Canadian first, absolutely, and and a black athlete second. Am I am I getting that correct? That that is correct. And um, and and I know you must have uh, dealt with an incredible amount of challenges in 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 those times. Yes. Uh, tell me what kind of support you may or may not have received from your teammates dealing with some of these challenges. And um, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. What support did you receive from your teammates and your management to, to deal with, obviously, what you had to deal with? Well, to be fair to everybody, I don't really think that a lot of guys realized that what the situation was. Because we were living in the moment. So, uh, you know, we can look back now, Naz and Wally, and we, we can say, okay, here's this kid that comes up from Scarborough and He's a number one draft pick in, in the O, and then again in the National League, he's what first to go in the second round. And he's going into this type of social environment uh, where these things are happening. And for the guys who came up, you know, say from Lethbridge or, or uh, you know, some, some small town, uh, I may have been the very first person they met of color. And so, you know, there were so many tangibles involved where... You know, people are, are there for a first-time show. Uh, they're there for a first-time uh, involvement. And uh, like I say, you know, it goes by in a blur. And, uh, you know, I, I don't fault anybody at this stage in my life uh, because I, I realize that, you know, like Shakespeare says, you know, life is a stage and everybody has their part to play. And who people were when they were 21 is not who you are when you're 60. Mike, would it have made a difference if you were drafted by either Toronto, Vancouver, or Montreal, the Canadian teams back then? Well, the thing is, you still have to play in the States. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not a big one for, um, you know, for, for uh, making the, the road easy by trying to uh, segregate a situation. I mean, if you're going to play in the National Hockey League or you're going to play in the O, then you've got to be playing, you know, AAA hockey all the way up in order to, to be competitive and be, be respected as an athlete. Uh, Mike, uh, we're talking to Mike Marson, of course, uh, former Washington Capitol. Uh, Mike, uh, you grew up in the Toronto area, in the Scarborough area, and uh, uh, when, we, when we get retired athletes on the, uh, 
on the show, and we've had quite a few, and some of the legends of the game. We always, I always like to ask, uh, always, I always like to ask this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're growing up, uh, I'll make it a two-part question. Okay. Was it your? When did you first realize you had the uh, the ability to make it to the NHL? And who was your hero? Who was your hockey hero when you grew up? Oh, that's those are easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when I was ten, I had uh, between ten and thirteen, I had some defining moments um, where you know perhaps somebody had said something that was offside, um, and um, and I realized that if I were to continue, uh, that I would still be in what I called the three percent. Um, you know, you 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 look around at your peers, you look around at your the people who you compete against. And you realize that, you know, he's probably the best and you're not too far behind him. So wherever he goes, you're going to be able to, to probably, if you maintain this level of, of uh, competitiveness, uh, you'll be able to go to the same places. And, um, uh, and so, you know, between 10 and 13, I would say. Uh, but as far as heroes go, oh, my gosh. Back in those days, the Star Weekly, and do you remember the Telegram? Sure do. Sure do, yeah. <laughs> sure do. Well, they, they used to have... I, you know, every Saturday they put out some kind of a special on, uh, you know, the athletes, mostly the Maple Leafs <laughs> or Montreal Canadiens. And, uh, and we, my brother Ricky and I, we used to cut the, the pictures of the different athletes out, like Bobby Hull was all over the wall. Uh, I remember when Dave Schultz came out, <clears throat> you know, the rough, tough guy, he was all over the wall. And we taped these guys up, so when he came into our room, it looked like Mike Wilson's place. <laughs> you know, Mike is arguably the uh, number one Leaf fan, <laughs> where he has everything you can possibly imagine. But, uh, and so it, it became like, uh, uh, I don't know, it was just a, a tremendous hobby. You know, they had the, the uh, playing cards uh, that you could pick up with the bubble gum, and, and uh, you know, it was just something that was always on our minds. Uh, we're talking to Mike Marson, retired uh, Washington player. Mike, had, did you ever watch the movie 42? Yes, I did. Did you ever meet Jackie Robinson in person? I did not. Jackie Robinson died 50 years before the movie was made. Okay. And uh, when you watched the movie 42, yes. what were your thoughts? Well... Was, is, there any of that, is there any of that movie, uh, is there any of you in that movie? Oh, absolutely. I have a hard time watching those type of movies because it... it you know, you're looking at it, and other people are, find it so interesting. And in your in your mind, you're saying, Gee, "I lived that. I went through that type of situation." Or, you know, I had people, uh, you know, treat me like I was like I, where I would, <clears throat> pardon me, where I would wonder to myself, "Why are they talking to me like that? Or why are they treating me like that?" Uh, just because nobody had ever spoken to me like that, you know. And so, no, there's a lot of a lot of it, any of those movies that go back in time and talk about, you know, how bad things were. I mean, historically, blacks never got the vote in the U.S. until 1955, which was the year that I was born. And so, I mean, that's, when you think about it, less than 20 years later, I turned pro. That's what I was turning pro into. And, you know, some of the situations were just, uh, they were incredible. You know, and it's a first-time goal, so there's not not like there's a manual you can study or you realize, don't go here because you'll upset these people, or don't go there. There was, there was nothing. It was all, uh, you know, a first shot at it, and you get it right or you don't. We're talking to Mike Marson. Mike, uh, just wanted to ask you, that, you know, uh, I'm not sure um, how much race 
is is an issue in the NHL today. If you want to comment on that, that's fine. But uh, to what extent? I mean, black athletes in the NHL have been, uh, I, I I think, more accepted than than when you came in and have done incredibly well. There's a lot of very talented black athletes in the NHL. Um, do you see race as still being an issue in the NHL? And to what extent do you consider yourself a trailblazer? Uh, well, I, I don't think race is the issue that it was. Uh, you know, for me, it was 42 years ago that I turned pro. So, you know, where were we as a culture 42 years ago, I think is important to relate to. Um, uh, and certainly, uh, the athletes now, I mean, uh, they've come up through systems where their coaches, their coaching staff, their training staff have also dealt with multicultural environments, had friends from different nationalities and whatnot. So I like to think that, yeah, everything has moved forward, uh, you know, regarding the race setup or situation in, in all sports. Um, I mean, they had laws down in the Deep South where you couldn't be, you couldn't have interracial roommates staying together. Uh, the old football teams used to have all the black guys stay here and the white guys stay there. <laughs> yeah, so we don't have any of that kind of stuff now. So, yeah, there's been, there have been some amazing strides. Um, I was, uh, a number of years ago, I'd say probably 20 years ago, Mr. Bettman flew me down to New York, and I met with him and uh, his, his hierarchy at the time. And uh, they were very interested in, in uh, you know, hearing what initiatives I had and, uh, you know, how we could help to make uh, just the general situation better. Um, and uh, what was the, the second question, Wally? <laughs> do you consider yourself a trailblazer? Oh, ah, you do what you do. You, you, you make a point of, of trying to do your best at everything that you do in this life because you only have 100 years, and that 100 years blows by like a, like a breeze. Sure does. And, uh, you know, uh, in 100 years, maybe they'll say I was a trailblazer, but I, I don't think that the full impact of the... Uh, you know the concept of things like hate mail being sent to your to your locker at the the old Capitol Center, uh, hate mail being mailed to your house, uh, people trying to uh, there was a guy that tried to to shoot me in in Philadelphia, oh you know God. those kinds of things. Uh, when you move away from it historically, it really is significant. Somebody will get some good reading <laughs> in the future, but I don't think at this stage now that it, you know you get your you're due. It's, uh, it's, like, um, it's like art. You know, uh, look at the artists that became popular, uh, say Van Gogh or, you know, Picasso, uh, but I, not until after they died. Were they really recognized for their greatness? Um, uh, Mike, uh, I think you're much too humble a man, and, and, uh, and, and you're talking about art. I just want to tell our listeners that actually you do, you do have an, uh, an artistic uh, bent in you, and, and art is one of your passions. So yes, exactly. I, I just want to tell our listeners where that was coming from. Thank you very much. Mike, um, I'm trying to picture you back at 19 years old. Did you have anybody that you talked to about these situations? Because I know if I was 19 years old... Back then, I, I I would need somebody to talk to. Did you have anybody that uh, you you spoke to? Um, you know, there was a guy, uh, Tom the Bomb Williams. They called him uh, the Bomber, and he played in Boston, and uh, he was the first American actually. And he he and I would chat, and he he could relate. Um, you know, being an American playing in a Canadian game, I guess back when it was the old uh, the six team NHL, uh, he was able to relate. 
you know, some of the things that he would have experienced. But it, it wasn't uh, his situation, uh, Tommy's situation, it wasn't as graphic as, you know, the, the type of the things that, you know, myself went through. And, of course, Billy Riley came and joined the team uh, at the following year. Um, but it's, um, I don't know, no, there really wasn't anybody. As I say, it was just a first, a first try, and uh, you get it right or you don't. Uh, Mike, um, we want to catch up a little bit, let our listeners know what, uh, you know, you, you've been retired from the NHL for, for a long time, and you've had, a, you've had an interesting life after the NHL. Yes. If, I'm, if I uh, read things correctly, you spent some time working for the Toronto Transit Commission. That's correct. And then you got into, uh, into the training, uh, you trained, uh, trained athletes. Tell us a little bit about your life after the NHL. Well, I can tell you that it, it was... Uh more or less like a culture shock to go from flying all over the world um, and, and uh, you know, three different cities a week. Uh, we had uh, a situation in Japan where Kansas City, I don't know if you guys remember Kansas City? Yes. <laughs> uh, Kansas City and Washington had been given um, uh, an opportunity to go over to Japan and compete and bring hockey to the Japanese culture. Uh, we were... Uh, treated first class, and on the way back, we stopped over in Hawaii. You know, it, it's quite a jet-set lifestyle. And uh, to then come back into the everyday life and to have to be a grinder, um, you know, living as a, as a, a normal man, uh, it, was, it was certainly interesting. But you have to remember that when I was in Los Angeles, uh, they were going to send me down to Binghamton, New York, and uh, I wasn't interested in going down there without a contract. I was going to go on my option year. And so I, I had said to, to Los Angeles that I uh, wasn't interested in doing that without a contract. So it was m- by my choice that I left the game. But at that particular point, I'd kind of had enough of stuff. You know, I'd, I'd kind of had enough of, of the, uh, the negative overtones that were, you know, almost on a daily basis. And so it was, it was a freedom from that uh, that was very important for me. Uh, but I had to walk the street just like the regular, a regular person does and look for a job. And, you know, uh, I, I had three considerations, the fire department, the police department, and, uh, and TTC. And uh, TTC hired me on the spot. The, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Price, I believe his name was, uh, he, um, you know, he had seen me play junior and, I guess it kept track of what had gone on and, and so forth. Uh, and so from there, you just you continue to uh, live every moment uh, the best that you can, and you try and develop uh, whatever your interests or hobbies may be. And uh, once you start moving, you don't stop. The, the big thing now, of course, is, is uh, post-traumatic syndrome and, uh, you know, the, the unfortunate situation where people have uh, suffer from depression. Uh, probably I went through some of that, probably uh, from the shock of not being in the, in the national and not being a, a star. Uh, but, you know, that the whole athletic thing about uh, competing, about getting up every day, going to where you're supposed to be and, and making it happen, uh, I, I absolutely attribute that to, to the, the great coaches that I had as a kid. We've been talking to Mike Marson. Mike, unfortunately, our uh, our time is running short here, and uh, we want to thank you so much 
for coming on and sharing uh, sharing with us your experiences and my uh, pr- my pleasure, Nathan and, Wally. And we know and we know that you're a humble man, and we know that uh, you've made an incredible difference in the lives of uh, so many people, and and you still continue to do so. And uh, we applaud you for that. <laughs> Thank you. And I will simply uh, finish it off the way I started it: is I bow to you, Mike, <laughs> and Os, my friend. Os, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you. That, of course, was uh, Mike Marson, and uh, um, a really remarkable man, Naz. Wow, he went through quite a bit. Yeah, really remarkable man, genuine man, humble man, and um, uh, great, death, great death positive threats. attitude. Death threats. Threats, you know, and uh, took uh, took uh, took his life in a certain direction, and really has made a a positive difference in the lives of so many people. It was uh, certainly a pleasure speaking to Mike Marson. We're going to go to break now. And as soon as we come back from break, we'll be speaking to Stephen Greigel about, uh, about the Gary Bettman, Dennis Weidman ruling. We'll be right back. It was a rainy day when Pizzaville introduced the really big pizza deal. It's even bigger than Toronto basketball star Jonas Valanciunas. He wears size 17 shoes. But the really big pizza is 18 inches, topped with pepperoni. Plus, you get 16 wings. And you get the really big pizza deal for just $29.99. Try getting Jonas for that. Call Pizzaville at pound 3636 from your cell phone. At 20,000 square feet, Steel's Paint and Woodbridge is Canada's largest independent paint store. Big deal, right? Big deal? Yes. The best brands, the best staff, the best advice, the best of everything. From color matching to brand selection, whether you're a pro or a DIYer, we'll look after you from the minute you walk in to the minute you walk in a second time as a completely satisfied customer. Big store, big deal, bigger satisfaction. Simple. Steel's Paint, 4190 Steel's Avenue West in Woodbridge. At Titanium Logistics, we believe that choosing the right shipping company comes down to two issues, price and cost. Most prices are competitive, will likely save you money too, but the cost of choosing the wrong company to service your cross-border freight to and from the U.S. and Mexico can be extraordinary. If it's not where it should be, when it should be, that bargain price, worthless. Titanium Logistics, on time, on budget. Call 905-266-3014. Ask for Blair Downey. This is Daryl Sittler for Alta Infinity and Vaughn. I've worked with some pretty great teams over the years, and the staff at Alta ranks among the very best. Expert sales, superior service, and the largest selection of Infinity cars and SUVs in Canada. And the most competitive pricing anywhere. It's no wonder that Alta has been an all-star performer for well over a decade. Visit AltaInfinityWoodbridge.com or better yet, drop by the number 7 Auto Mall at the corner of Martin Grove and Highway 7. Experience the difference that makes Alta Infinity the captain's choice. There's an old saying, entrepreneurship doesn't build character, it reveals character. Entrepreneurs learn to trust a person by trusting people. The law firm Rigabon Carly understands this. They know all about entrepreneurs because they work for them every day. They've earned their trust. They know that when it comes to meeting the legal and business needs of entrepreneurs, good enough is not enough. Rigabon Carly, the intelligent choice. The security business is easy, right? Anyone can learn it. Perhaps they can learn it on duty with your valuables at stake. 
Perhaps they can learn it in a crisis situation that requires an immediate intelligent response when lives are at risk. After all, what harm can a few mistakes make? Plenty. When it comes to security for your business or office, an experienced partner like Regal Security makes sense. Security is what they do. Peace of mind is what they provide. Visit them online at regalsecurity.ca and find out how much they know, not how much they can learn. The only thing I love more than sports is sports radio. Take it away, boys. The Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour. We are live from Liberty Village in downtown Toronto. We are ha- we're pleased to uh, be talking this morning with Stephen Greigold. Stephen, of course, uh, has been on the show before. He is the attorney for the NHL uh, players in the concussion litigation against, uh, against the NHL. He's a graduate of Harvard and a partner in the firm. Silverman, Thompson, Slutkin, and White in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome back, Stephen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's it's uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, first of all, my condolences on on your on your Habs. Uh, things haven't turned out that well since the last time we spoke. We know that uh, aside from being a, uh, a, a an extremely talented attorney, you're also a Montreal Canadiens fan. So uh, I am, and it's been a bit of a rough slog these last couple of months. However, they won the other night. PK had two assists. They're playing in, uh, I know they're playing in Washington on Wednesday night, and I will be there to watch them prevail over the most talented power play in the league. Yeah, cert- well, that's calling a lot. I Certainly. Think uh, in Toronto, we, we hate the Habs. So, uh, I know that. So you're not, you, won't, you wouldn't be the most popular guy in Toronto. Anyways, Stephen, well, we apologize for, uh, for keeping you waiting. We had Mike Marson, and it was certainly a fascinating interview. But I want to I get around to a gentleman that you're very, very familiar with. Uh, you've butted heads with, uh, with uh, Gary Bettman a few times uh, in, uh, in your legal uh, in your legal work, and yes, I know I you. I know you have a grudging. Uh, uh, I don't use the word admiration, but you have a tremendous amount of respect for Gary Bettman. And uh, that's true. I do. And uh, we want to get to his ruling this week. Uh, it's online. You've read it. I've read it. We've chatted about it. Uh, I know you've got some uh, um, some legal uh, comments that we'd like to draw upon. But uh, Stephen, is it a is is it a legal document or is it a political document? I really read this as a legal document with political overtones. It's quite clear that this is a, regardless of what you think about the opinion's conclusion, it is very precise. It is very careful. I think I would describe it as highly lawyerly, which is what you would expect from a lawyer such as Commissioner Bettman, who has a very organized and analytical mind. He put together an opinion that with which one could disagree, and certainly the PA disagrees, but fundamentally he protected himself, I think, quite well with the way he crafted this opinion as he looked at the facts of the case and essentially deconstructed them to support the conclusion that he wanted. As a piece of legal reasoning, it's really quite tight, and one has to have an admiration for the way the commissioner went about this. Yeah, uh, oh. I uh, I have a personal I, I mean I've read the document too and I have to I have to agree with uh, uh, the admiration of of how he worded it and how he constructed it. I don't agree with his quite frankly I don't agree with his ruling. Uh, there's parts of that that um, I, I sort of have issue with, and I want to take want to take it to one part of the uh, to get your assessment and your your opinion. Uh, one part of the ruling, which is the very very last paragraph. 
and this is what he's been criticized for uh, quite a bit in Canada from some of the some of the sports commentators. And I just want a lawyer's reaction to it. Um, he felt it necessary in the last paragraph, and I'll call it an opinion because that's my legal professional bent. But it's not it's not really an opinion in the in the legal sense. I don't think it's I don't know what you would call it. Reasons for a decision, but uh, he go, he goes and releases the contents of uh, a text message that Dennis Weidman sent to one of his teammates after, after, after the incident happened. And now, I believe that under the collective bargaining agreement, I, don't, I want to try and not be as lawyerly as I can, but under the collective bargaining agreement, uh, the players and the league are required, they're legally required if asked, to provide their phones and their text messages. So certainly right. the NHL was within their rights under the collective bargaining agreement to ask it. But the criticism is, is um, was it necessary for Gary Bettman to, to comment on that in the last paragraph of, of his reasons? I think as a matter of legal analysis, what we would call generally this kind of statement is dicta. It's not central to the holding. So to answer your question, I think the answer is no. However, I think the commissioner's justification for putting this in was that if he were going to do a downward departure from the 20 games that are mandatory under Rule 40, which the commissioner used as a construct for his discipline here, which is assault on or attack on an official, he could have come down if he had thought that there was remorse that was genuine. And I think he put this in to protect himself against the criticism that, well, you could have knocked a couple of games off it because Dennis Weidman is, generally speaking, an exemplary fellow in 800 games. He's never done anything really wrong. So I thought the commissioner put it in for that reason. However, one can only wonder what other text messages there were. And I know some other players who play with Weidman had said there were other text messages where they give the context that show he was truly remorseful. In other words, context, as we all know, is critical, particularly in this age of Twitter and email, which do not typically provide full context. One can write an email that is intended as a joke, but read literally would look as a scathing criticism. So I think it might have been, it was, I think it was unnecessary for the commissioner to put this in. He may have put it in to bolster the reasons for not doing a downward departure. I frankly wished he hadn't done it because I think it casts an unfair light on Dennis Weidman, and it's probably out of context. I haven't read all the other yeah. emails. I'd like to see what they say. I, I, I was of the same. I was the same assessment of that, Stephen. I says you don't know the context, and you know what did he say? You know, he right. said stupid refs, stupid media. Right. Wh- whoopie do. I mean, I I don't. You know, does, is that a lack of remorse or just somebody somebody being flippant? Uh, I mean, if, if, if I if I had to, if I had to apologize for every time I've called refs stupid in my lifetime, or called <laughs> the media stupid, right. uh, if I had to make a donation of uh, you know uh, you know every time I have ever said that, man, I, I'd be I'd be a lot poorer than I already am. Exactly. Uh, I mean that, that to me that was meaningless, Stephen. I I agree, and in that statement is also not inconsistent with the idea that as the PA put forward. He was concussed and, at bottom, did not have the sufficient mental capacity to form the intent to hit the referee, which was crucial to the entire finding here. This is a very significant finding in this case because what we are talking about is a standard of proof that is very high. This commissioner correctly lays out it has to be by clear and convincing evidence. 
not just the preponderance, 51% of the evidence, but clear and convincing evidence. So it's a very high standard. And at the outset, the idea that the fellow is concussed and unable to perform the mental um, processes required to form intent is a pretty powerful argument for the PA. But I don't read that snippet. The only problem and the only reason I'm here is because the stupid refs and stupid media it's not necessarily inconsistent. It does, it's not inherently contradictory to the idea that he was concussed. Yeah. The, the other thing I found, um, in, in, and I have, a, I have a high respect for Gary Bettman's intelligence. Really, I do. Um, the other thing I found um, uh, a little bit disingenuous about the reasons was his summary of the facts, which I, I, you know, he, he, I think he deliberately left out the facts that um, – where that could have, you know, th- that shed a different light on it. And the part of it that he left out was that Weidman made significant and serious efforts to avoid this collision. He really, he did. If you he look at... He constructed every step of Dennis Weidman's activity on the ice from the moment he took yeah. that really hard hit in the corner to the moment he got on his own bench. It is d- dissected in minute detail all of which goes to show under commitment Bet- Commissioner Bettman's ruling that he was in possession of his faculties and he did sufficiently form the intent to hit the referee. And, of course, the video, viewed by anybody and viewed more than once, is very difficult to get around. It's an ugly video. Have you seen, have, have you seen the video from the other angle? Yes, I have. The one, I call it the grassy knoll video, the one, exactly. the, the one in the top corner yes, where, where Weidman literally pivots a complete 90 degrees to try and avoid the... He does... He pivots 90 degrees to try and avoid the collision. Right. And that perspective obviously makes it look much more innocent than the one from behind, where we see Dennis Weidman taking a few strides, seeming to gather himself from being hunched over, getting upright, stating with purposeful activity, and then, as the commissioner emphasizes, raising his hands, and instead of getting out of the way or trying to get out of the way, essentially cross-checks the fellow, you know, the referee. You see, but da- Stephen, he doesn't cross-check him. I mean, they use that word loosely. If, if you look at it, he doesn't cross-check him in, 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 in the hockey sense of the word. Not in the hockey sense of Not the word. Not in the hockey sense of the word. Ho- right. Cross-check is when you hit somebody with the, 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 the stick, the shaft of the stick. He hits him with his gloves. His gloves are up against yeah. his back. And what I found troublesome, of course, was that the PA, one of the PA's experts, I believe it was Dr. Kutcher, described it as a cross-check. Yeah, I found that troublesome, too. I said, I don't know yeah. why they conceded that point. It's not a cross-check. I, I don't defend the action. Believe me. Believe me. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I believe Weidman deserved a significant suspension, maybe not 20 games. I, I just don't. I, I read that judgment, and I saw the word cross-check in there about four or five times. And I'm saying, why did they concede that point? It's not a cross-check. You know, you mentioned my respect for Commissioner Bettman. Obviously, I have an enormous disagreement, yeah. with he, which he and I have discussed, about his approach to uh, the litigation we have going. But I do, other than that, obviously, I have a lot of respect for him, just as I do with, for Steve Fear and Don Fear. I think the world is Steve. Uh, we've talked about the law a number of times, and the law that deals with collective bargaining and preemption, for example. But I was surprised that the league's, uh, the, the PA's approach to this was, A, to have Dr. Kutcher testify that it was a cross-check, and maybe that wasn't their doing. Maybe that was simply the expert uh, being perhaps a little bit imprecise. But one of the issues we have in the case, of course, is Commissioner Bettman 
in the way you would do it in a personal injury case, essentially attacking the other side's experts with essentially bias that they were hired after the fact, did 35-minute FaceTime videos at a time the commissioner is at pains to point out. Mr. Weidman knew he was facing a significant suspension, and then they say the two experts credited Mr. Weidman's descriptions of his doings without any criticism, without any analysis, without doing anything to corroborate that what Mr. Weidman was telling them was true. And then the commissioner says, and he wasn't even your patient, so you didn't have to credit it as true. I mean, the commissioner went out of his way to debunk what Dr. Kutcher and Dr. Comper said. And frankly, he had some ways of doing that because their reports were at odds, as the commissioner painfully, excruciatingly spells out, with their testimony at the hearing. And that gave the commissioner an awful lot with which to work to come to the conclusion to which he came, essentially saying they dealt in generalities in their testimony about what could have happened as opposed to what they should have been saying, according to the commissioner, which is what did happen. Stephen, uh, how much of the the ruling had the, the, the referee or the linesman in question is now concussed himself? Right. How much uh, protection is Bettman giving to the referees with this, because I think that's one of the reasons why the suspension is still at 20 games. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, the constituencies that Commissioner Bettman has are many, and in many ways contradictory to each other. The players, the union as an organization, the referees. This was a serious issue for the referees. They were obviously represented at the hearing, and Commissioner Bettman was sending, I think, a very strong statement that we are protecting our referees and that this was simply out of bounds. Your point is exactly right. He was making clear that the referees know that the league has their back. It also demonstrates to me from a broader perspective two big points. One, it shows the tremendous power and authority the commissioner has to make the game safer for all participants. Playing Rule 28 is quoted in the opinion, and it shows the commissioner has the ability to investigate on his own and to discipline virtually anything that happens on the ice regardless whether the on-ice officials made a penalty call. That's incredibly striking to me. And I found the second issue systemically very important, particularly for my litigation, is that Dennis Weidman was hit very hard. The PA says he was concussed. Accepting that at face value, why didn't he go to the quiet room? Why was there not an evaluation of Dennis Weidman immediately after he hit the bench? And the NHL, as you know, reserved its rights, Commissioner Bettman did in a footnote, to investigate that lack of compliance with the protocol. So there's an awful lot in this ruling that deals with the league's approach to player safety, approach to the referee's safety, and systemically the league's power to make the game safer for everybody, regardless Steve, of what the PA says. We're talking to Stephen Greigel, who's attorney for the NHL players in the concussion litigation Concussion litigation with the uh, with the NHL, uh, Stephen. Unfortunately, we've only got a minute left, and uh, I barely scratched the surface of, of what I wanted to ask you. But uh, in, in that one minute, just uh, bring our listeners up to date. What's going on with the concussion litigation? Sure. The National Hockey League has very recently moved to stay the entire litigation. Stay is a they, fancy legal word for what? That means to stop everything until the court issues its ruling on the NHL's motion to throw the whole case out on the grounds that the case should be in the collective bargaining realm and not in the, not in the judicial realm. The court hasn't issued a ruling on that motion. It was argued to the court on January the 8th, 2015, over a year ago, and the NHL is saying, Judge, come on, don't make us spend any more money, don't make us put anybody else up for depositions or make us produce any more documents 
unless and until you have issued a ruling that tells us that this case belongs in court or does not belong in court. I argued against that last week. Uh, the primary reason the NHL is saying that is because they think that preemption, that fancy legal word for throw the case out and send it to collective bargaining's grievance machinery, they think that's the way this case should go. Of course, I'm vehemently opposed, and I'm quite confident the law is opposed. Okay, Stephen, unfortunately, uh, my producer's uh, giving me the the X sign. So uh, we're, we'll certainly we'll call you. We'll keep an eye on the case. Uh, we wish you the best of luck. Please and, do. And uh, we'll, we'll touch base again soon. Hey, listen, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Enjoyed it enormously. It's a pleasure and a privilege of uncommon dimension. Thank you. Appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks so much. That, of course, was Stephen Greigel. Uh, Naz, unfortunately... Uh, our time has run short, and uh, any parting shots? Hey, very interesting guests, too. Very, very interesting guests, for sure. Mike Marson and Stephen Grego. We've been listening. You've been listening to the Nazimali Sports Hour. We'll be back again next Sunday morning at nine a.m. Have a fantastic week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.